0: Welcome to the 105th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are an overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, a look back at the first few bowl games of the college football bowl season, and recapping week 15 of the NFL season. Let's jump right in with the first podcast of our second year podcasting together with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. And we will start in the NBA, where Patrick went two and two with his predictions. In the NFL, Patrick went three and one. In NCAA basketball, Patrick went one and one, as two games were postponed that he had predicted. And in the NCAA football, Patrick's predictions will be tracked via his predictions for the entire bowl game season and counted up and talked about at the end of bowl season. Because
1: so, I don't want to make any math errors by uh, counting four games of four of each of the games that I pick every weekend. And then all of a sudden at the end of the, at the end of the bowl season, I add 44 games to the four that I counted from every week. And all of a sudden I've now inflated, (laughs) I've now inflated my record by a bit. So I figured I'll post the important ones anyway, regardless, um, because it's no extra effort to just, you know, make the post, but I will not, we will be tracking them later on. Maybe I could do updates throughout. We'll see probably every two weeks or something when we talk about bowl games, but
0: definitely easier to add to the overall tally all at once when they're all over with. So for the ones that we're tallying right now, Patrick went six and four in his weekend predictions. That brings him to, wow, a pretty round number, 275 and 200 overall.
1: You can thank the postponements for that actually.
0: That's true. A 57.9% winning percentage. So Patrick, let's talk about those predictions.
1: We can start in the NBA where uh, let's just say I kind of forgot that uh, in the 50 postponements or whatever that happened in probably all the sports. If you added them up, Uh, I was more focused on, well, actually before the games were postponed, I was hearing stuff about, you know, all the NFL players that were testing positive. The games that got pushed back to Tuesday and Monday avoided some of those games on purpose that, you know, they would actually be able to be counted here. Instead of picking games on Tuesday, that would never get counted. um, At least for the records. When we're talking about it on this podcast episode, what I forgot to do is look at who was out in the NBA. And I ended up picking the Bucks to beat the Cavaliers, a team that they have a very close record to. A team that's not exactly on their caliber. Obviously, the Bucks, the defending champions. But I picked the Bucks, not realizing that Giannis, Drew Holiday, and Chris Middleton would all be out. So basically, the Bucks have a big three that led them to a title. Now take all of the big three out and add in just the reserves from that championship-winning team, and see if they can beat a team that's in playoff that's in playoff contention. The answer is no, it's not going to happen. So that was my bad for not checking that. I should have checked who had tested positive and who was injured, although I think one of those might have been an injury and a game time decision, kind of a deal there. Um, But that prediction I definitely shouldn't have gotten wrong because that would have been pretty easy or I could have changed the game all in in itself. Um, The one one loss that I had other than that was the Wizards uh, beating the Jazz, which was just honestly surprising. I can't really account for that one. Uh, The Jazz don't lose a lot at home. And the Wizards haven't been playing well recently, so that was a little bit surprising. Um, In the NFL, uh, a few weeks ago I lost because the Ravens went for two and didn't get it against the Steelers after I had picked them. This week they went for two against the Packers and didn't get it when I picked against them. So I guess I I, I end out even (laughs) on Ravens' two-point conversion attempts to win the game. Uh, So I'll take that. That was a very close win. Uh, then you have the Bengals-Broncos game where really there were no touchdowns for the first 45 minutes of the game, and then all of a sudden, or the first 42 or 43 minutes of the game, and all of a sudden, at the end of the third quarter, both teams scored touchdowns in a one and a half minute span, and all of a sudden you had a, a little bit of a more interesting game that went from 9-3 to three, to 10-9, to nine, then to 15-10 to 10, uh, after the Bengals missed a two-point conversion it stayed at 15-10, to 10, and then all of a sudden, uh, with Teddy Bridgewater out, Drew Locke could not lead the Broncos to the game winning drive. There's a reason why they brought in Teddy Bridgewater instead of letting him play this year out. Um, and it looks like the Broncos will be looking for another quarterback next year. Let's just be honest. Um, but for now, the main concern for them is Teddy Bridgewater's injury as he left the game with a head injury. Uh, and that's why drew lock had to come in. So we'll have to see what's up with that. Have to track that. Uh, That's going to hurt their playoff push if Drew Locke is starting instead of Teddy Bridgewater. I think it's very, very clear that they think they have a good enough defense to win now, but not with Drew Locke at quarterback. And that is the reason why they brought in Teddy Bridgewater. So take him out of the equation. I don't know what's going to happen there, but that was the one loss. The other games went pretty well, I would say. The Chiefs had a great game against the Chargers in overtime. We'll talk about that one a lot. Um, And then in the NCAA, I had Ohio State and Kentucky. Uh, I had Kentucky with the upset pick. And based on how Kentucky played, I think they would have beaten Ohio State. This weekend, uh, Kentucky got their game rescheduled to playing against North Carolina instead in the same event. If they had played the way they played against North Carolina, but they played like that against Ohio State, Kentucky easily would have won that game, unfortunately. I'm not going to just switch my predictions because it's an entirely different team, and frankly, a little bit less of a fair matchup. Um, and then, just overall, the the one game I got wrong, uh, Providence. I was so confident in Providence, and I actually... It's funny, you know, normally I wouldn't put a team on the road against a top 20 team uh, in my predictions unless I picked the unranked team to win. But what I was doing was I was trying to point out with with a little bit of subliminal messaging there that, hey, Providence is a good team. You should watch out for them, although they're still going to lose this game. I was wrong. I knew that they were good and I should have listened to myself. Providence went on the road and beat UConn uh, in that game. They're now 11-1. and one. They are ranked finally. Um, still better than USC, but the rankings haven't, haven't decided (laughs) that yet.
0: You stole my question for
1: you. Uh, but, uh, and so is UConn. Um, but yeah, overall my predictions were fine there. And then I think the other postponement, I'm honestly struggling to remember which game it was because there were just so many of them. Um, but
0: it was the opposite side of that uh, Vegas thing. No,
1: it wasn't because that was North Carolina, UCLA. And I know I didn't pick that. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't remember what it was. Um, but overall, uh then Gonzaga beat Texas Tech and that was uh the other other game that I had predicted there. Um and then so you just got those with that one and one and that's about it. Um but overall I'll take it. Six and four is fine. Could've done better. Uh if you look at my NCAA predictions, I think so far I'm five and five. Um but I think it'll get better as we get to the teams that, you know, no offense to the to the 6-6 six and six teams in the American and the 6-6 six and six teams in the Conference of USA and the 8-4 and four teams in the Sun Belt. But they're not exactly teams I have my eye on all season, so I don't necessarily have the greatest sense of knowledge about Middle Tennessee and Toledo. I'm a little bit better with Pitt and Michigan State, to give an example. Uh, so hopefully when we get to teams with, uh, with, with teams that uh, I've watched their games at least, then maybe I'll start picking a little bit better, but I'll take 5-5 five and five for now at the start of the bowl season.
0: All right, well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website, as always, on Thursday. Let's now move on to a look back at college football bowl season, which started a few days ago, featured a few ranked teams, as well as the usual collection of 500 teams matched up in the early bowl action. Patrick, give us a quick recap of the early bowl games.
1: Well, uh, the, the closest game, I would say, uh, in terms of how it turned out was UAB's upset over number thirteen BYU. They won thirty one to twenty eight. Uh, however, that one was a, a game where BYU was favored by I think double digits for a long time. But then you add in the dimension that Jaron Hall, BYU's starting quarterback, went from I guess questionable or no injury listed. Obviously, uh, college football injury designations are not the same as the NFL, where you have a week and then you report them throughout the week and you update on practice. You don't have to do any of that. And all of a sudden, just before the game, it popped up that he was doubtful to play. Uh, I still thought BYU had a chance. If I would have had more time and I'd seen that report before the game, I probably would have changed the margin that I had BYU winning by. Uh, but other than that, I still thought they were going to win the game. And they came pretty close. Uh, they only they only lost the game because they gave up before a touchdown pass on a 4th and 7. Uh, that was the decider in the game. They were up 28-24 to 24 at that point. UAB got that touchdown and won the game off of it after running the clock out some more. Uh, and stopping BYU on a fourth and two in their own territory. But overall, not too surprised BYU lost knowing that they'd have a backup quarterback in the game. Uh, moving on from that, you had Fresno State who won the game basically on a game-winning safety. Uh, UTEP was down 24-29. to Fresno State sacked UTEP's quarterback in the end zone. He fumbled, uh, and then UTEP's O-lineman got back on it. But unfortunately, obviously, it's still a safety. Fresno State got the ball back, didn't do much with it, but they got a stop on UTEP after that, ran the clock out, uh, and won that game thirty-one to twenty-four. Then you have Utah State, who, by virtue of Oregon State not making three big plays, or really, well, it depends on which way you wanna you wanna slice it. But uh, either Oregon State made three stupid plays, or Utah State made three good plays, and that's what won this game twenty-four to thirteen in Utah State's favor in the newly instituted uh, Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl uh, at SoFi Stadium, um, and then. You have Coastal Carolina, uh, who, again, close out another great season. Now another 11-win season. Two in a row for that program is pretty nice for them. Uh, Over Northern Illinois with a 47-41 win. Weird ending to that game where there was some spotting dilemmas and stuff like that. If you watch the UCF-USF game at the end of the year, it was very reminiscent of that, uh, where they had a review about the clock and a lot of confusion that I can't really explain without just having it to watch. Um, but a confusing end, but a great game because I mean, this is, this is the game. If you, if you're not like somebody whose favorite team was like the 1985 bears, this was the perfect game to watch because neither of these teams could stop each other. It was very, very fun to watch. Carolina
0: came from behind in the fourth quarter to win the game.
1: Yep. And I mean, just overall, you give me 47 to 41, it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, but moving on from that, the game that started off the bowl season, middle Tennessee beat. Toledo, 31-24. Uh, Middle Tennessee won the game off of pretty much, I mean, well, Middle Tennessee played pretty well throughout the game. Toledo almost made it close at the end, but just a turnover or two really cost Toledo the game, and that's uh, that was the story of that game for them. Uh, and overall, Middle Tennessee just outplayed them. Uh, and then moving on from that, you had number 23, Louisiana, who beat Marshall 36-21. That matchup is how I thought BYU-UAB was going to turn out, or if you look at how Liberty and Eastern Michigan turned out, kind of like that game. But uh, th- this game, with no injured starting quarterback, all of a sudden went definitely in Louisiana's favor pretty easily. Although, Louisiana was only up 16-10 to, 10 at, the ha- to, sorry, 16 to at the half, sorry, 16-14 to at the half, and we're losing twenty one to sixteen heading into the fourth quarter, but outscored Marshall twenty to nothing in the fourth quarter to win thirty-six to twenty one.
0: Good way to close out a game.
1: It's it's a good way to close out a game and also a good way to start a new coaching tenor. Uh, for the guy who's succeeding Billy Napier. Uh it's you know, that, that's that's the start you want when your team is gonna fight back in the fourth quarter for you. I think you won't see as many players transfer out as you've seen from certain other programs with their coaches leaving because I think this bowl game gives them some belief in what will happen next season. And they are obviously at 12 and 1, actually, at 13 and 1, a very, very successful team. Will probably be, I would say, top three or four in wins overall. I don't think there's anybody that can really surpass them other than the playoff teams. Um, but then you have Tulsa who beat Old Dominion today 30 to 17. Not exactly the most interesting game, it was kind of a, a dull 30 to 17 kind of a victory. Uh, but Tulsa gets the win over Old Dominion, who interestingly enough started the year one and six and won five games in a row at the end of the year to rally back into it uh, and get into bowl eligibility for the second time in their program's history.
0: All right, who were your most impressive players so far in the bowl season?
1: Well, it's pretty obvious who uh, person number one is. It's Bailey Zappi from Western Kentucky, 33 of 47, 422 yards and six touchdowns passing in this game, setting records at 5,967 yards and 62 touchdowns in a single season. Uh, it's, those, those are big numbers, and as I said, they even benched him in the fourth quarter. West, Western Kentucky did. If they didn't do that, he could have been the first guy to pass for six thousand yards ever. And I'm not sure anybody's going to get to that ever again. So I, I really thought they had a unique opportunity there to really set a huge, huge, I huge record.
0: told the coach. Yeah,
1: I mean, he needs 33 more yards to 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 get to get it in the fourth quarter. I mean, you might as well just throw him out for one series, throw one deep ball if he. I mean, just throw maybe three deep balls and then punt it and see if that works. I mean, I, I think they could have, think they could have helped him a little bit. Um, but he broke Joe Burrow's record for touchdowns and B.J. Simmons' record for passing yards. So crazy season by Bailey Zappi. And I mean, don't pick against teams that throw for five thousand five hundred yards before season before bowl season even starts. Don't do what I did. This is not a good move. Um, then you have Malik Willis, who decided not to opt out of the bowl game, even though he is viewed by some. Uh, as the number one quarterback in the upcoming draft, it's really between him, Kenny Pickett, and Matt Corral. They're all kind of sandwiched in the mid-20s of the mock drafts, and they're all the top three easily. But uh, the order that you want to put them in is really up to you. But Malik Willis, kind of a Lamar Jackson archetype with a quarterback. He's thir- he went 13 of 24 in this game, 231 yards, three touchdowns, eight carries, 58 yards, two touchdowns on the ground. The most efficient quarterback performance I've seen in a while with 24 throws to get 231 yards and five total touchdowns uh, and also win a game 56 to 21. That's a pretty good performance.
0: Okay, well, that wraps up our early look at college football bowl action. Let's move on to our weekly review of NFL action, which is a bit truncated this week due to COVID uh, concerns, postponing a couple games till Tuesday night. But uh, with the exception of those two games, we will talk about the best games of week 15, Patrick.
1: Starting with the game that started off the whole week, the Thursday night matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs and the LA Chargers, a 34-28 overtime win for the Chiefs. The story of the game was the Chargers being 2-5 of five on fourth down, uh, and, you know, 2-5 of five doesn't sound all that bad, but then when you realize that the three that they missed were actually, well, one of them was after they had already converted one fourth down, and two of them were fourth in goals. Then you realize that the Chargers missed out on some points, and then you say, wait a second, this game went to overtime. Imagine if they had kicked two field goals. However, uh, the one point that I will defend defend, uh, Brandon Staley here on is the fact that the Chargers have not stopped going for it on fourth down the entire year. So this is just who they are. They haven't, and and I'm happy that at least they don't change their identity based on who they're playing, trying not to lose against the Chiefs, as opposed to saying, Against the Eagles, we're going to go for it, but against the Chiefs, we're not going to. I think it's at least better to have one consistent approach. I don't necessarily with the agree with the approach that they've taken consistently, which is pretty much going for it in any opportunity that's shorter than two on the opposite side of the 40-yard line, but uh, in terms of the overall consistency of the approach, it's there, so if that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do, and I'm not going to say that that's bad.
0: Well, actually, in this game, it netted them seven points, and, and it cost them six, but netted them seven, right? Because one of the times they didn't get it they ended up getting interception and converting that to a touchdown so you could argue it got them one point and made the game go to overtime but i understand your point
1: well the reason why they got the interception is just because they had backed them up in their own territory and i guess that but the but how that goes is the same way of field position on punts that's like saying don't go for it from from fourth and one on the 40 yard line when you're about to when you're about to lose a game because what if what if the best quarterback in the league all of a sudden decides that he can't see a defensive end and and tries to throw a check down and throws it directly to a defensive end who leaps up in the air and throws an interception? That happens zero times out of 99. It just happens maybe one in 100, and that was the one in 100 that somehow worked out. But again, it wasn't the fourth down that worked out. It was the lucky interception they got right after, so... The, I mitigate mitigated a little bit. I so don't. I, it makes it seem a lot, a lot less bad. But but when you take of what actually happened straight from the fourth downs, that has nothing to do with Understood. it. So overall, they just lost six points off. Frankly, they I think they actually lost nine because I think they actually went for it at least in field goal range three times. But uh, you know, again, the Chargers have been doing that all year, so I'm not going to say that they've changed it to to try to beat the Chiefs and they were going too crazy about it. So I'll leave it at the fact that. If you want to have an approach, you can have an approach and they clearly have their approach and that's what they've committed to. And moving on from that game, you had one of the first games, obviously there were multiple morning games on Sundays, but the Titans and the Steelers, the Steelers have finally turned it around. Now, nah, maybe, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I can never tell with these guys, um, but they turned it around for one game. I'll give them credit for that. They were able to pull out a hard fought win against the Titans in this game, uh, bringing them to seven and six and one on the season. They won this game 19-13, to 13, mainly based off of their defense. The Titans were up 10 to nothing, and the Steelers just held them down for the rest of the game. I mean, they only got one field goal in the remainder of the game, and that's really what um, gave the Steelers this win. But, uh, you know, good play by the Steelers. And uh, overall, I still think they have a lot to improve on. I still don't think they're the caliber of a playoff team just quite yet. But uh, when you look at some of the other teams, I still think they're better than teams like Cleveland, teams like the Raiders. I still think they're better than those teams, or at least in the area with them, maybe in in the conversation with them. But that's not enough to make the playoffs because right now, and we're going to get into this later, if you look at the AFC playoff picture, you have Baltimore as the first team out of the playoffs and Buffalo as the last team in. So when that's the standard, being in the category of the Browns and the Raiders is not enough to make the playoffs, and it won't be. Uh, But let's move on from that. We'll get back to those two teams later, actually. Uh, But the Packers... Beat the Ravens that I just talked about. 31-30. The Packers, with this win, clinched the division. uh, in the NFC North became the first team to clinch a playoff uh, appearance uh, this year. There are some other teams who had opportunities to clinch, but did not do so. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But the Packers, 11-3 now on the season. Easily the top seed in the NFC after some other results that happened this weekend. Um, And because of that, you have the Ravens. Uh, falling to eight and six, and they're now out of the playoffs technically for now, just based on some tiebreakers. Uh, we'll have to see what happens later with that. Obviously, they still have well, they don't have any games against Cleveland left, but I think they still have a game against the Bengals left, and we'll we'll really see what it comes down to then. I think they I, I think they have a game against the Bengals. I think they have another one somewhere in the division, probably against the Steelers, um, but. Overall, those games are going to decide the AFC North and probably who gets into the playoffs. I'd say there's probably going to be two of those teams making it. Uh, I think no matter what, even with Cleveland in last at 7-7, seven and seven, they're still tied for 10th. And then you have the 8th and ninth seeds are Baltimore and Pittsburgh. So I think overall you probably get two teams out of the AFC North. Uh, I would assume that Cincinnati finds a way to stick in it still and stay in the playoffs. And then also Baltimore at the same time as Cincinnati stays in, Baltimore is able to leap over Cincinnati for the division lead, but Cincinnati stays in as a wild card because they have, I think, some of the better tiebreakers, whereas Baltimore, as you can see, tied with four teams at eight and six, and yet they're the ones who end up in fourth out of that tiebreaker. But we just talked about it with the Chargers in relation to fourth downs. What are your thoughts on the Ravens going for two twice, now losing two games that let's just say if they split the two games down the middle, they won one game in overtime off the coin toss and lost the other game in the overtime off the coin toss. What if all of a sudden the Ravens are 9-5 and five instead and still in control of the division? Do you believe that maybe instead of going for two, they should have just kicked the extra point against the Sealers and they should have kicked the extra point against the Packers?
0: I never question Harbaugh's coaching decision. Um, but John Harbaugh did say one time it was due to the injury situation with his team and he thought he had to win it right there. I'm not sure... Um, what the injury situation was against the Packers. Well, it was maybe. no Lamar Jackson, so yeah, that was part of it. Yeah, and I also think that maybe he thinks if I've got to go against Aaron Rodgers and i got a chance to get three yards and not have the ball in his hands, I'm going to try to win the game. I don't I don't question the decision um, in both instances. Obviously, the results didn't work. He'd look like a pure genius if he had converted on both those two-point conversions.
1: Well, I will say I think the first one was really no choice. I think th- the situation that they had was that they not only had corners out who were injured heading into the game, but they also then lost two corners during the game and had like four D-backs total. So they really could only put out, I mean, the Steelers could just put out five receivers on the field and all of a sudden there was a linebacker who has to cover a wide receiver. You have to play zone. Uh, So based off of that, it it really makes sense that that game they didn't want to take in overtime also because they were on the road but I think in this game, they just had a little bit too much of Aaron Rodgers' phobia because they had given him the ball back after going for it in an attempt to... I mean, look, the Ravens had a chance to to kick a field goal earlier in this quarter, decided not to, and th- they they went for it on fourth down. They missed it and gave the Packers the ball back The Packer, because they couldn't stop the Packers the whole game. That felt like the right decision, and then all of a sudden they had to go for it again after, by the way. They got an onside kick that they definitely shouldn't have been able to get, um, and they needed a miracle to stay in this game, so frankly, this shouldn't have even been a talking point in the first place. But when you come down to it, but when it comes down to it, I would actually say that there's a chance that I would say, I mean, it's the different circumstances, right? I mean, one game you're saying we're taking it to overtime with no corners, and the other game you're saying but we have Lamar Jackson to get the two yards. And the other game you're saying, let's have our backup quarterback, Tyler Huntley, get the two yards as opposed to trying to defend Aaron Rodgers. I think, honestly, the Steelers' decision makes a lot more sense just because all the injuries were current in that game and the Ravens weren't really that injured and banged up in this game specifically. They kind of knew who they had going in and that was really all they could do with it. So I feel like maybe this game made a little less sense to go for it, but I think... You could make the argument for both of them, and I'm not really going to question it. I think, just like I said with the Chargers, they've made their identity clear that if they feel like they have a personnel disadvantage, they're going to keep going for two because even though, even if it's with a backup quarterback, three yards versus my depleted defense going out there maybe off of a coin toss. And by the way, that also factors into it because I don't think that they thought they could score automatically in overtime with a backup quarterback. So, Because until they were playing the two-minute drill, the Packers had really done a good job on defense this game, so I think that's what came into it. Uh, but finally, moving on, you had the Raiders and the Browns. The Raiders winning 16-14. The Browns with Nick Mullins starting at quarterback, former third-string quarterback for the back, for the 49ers, then former backup for the Niners, uh, now starting in this game because Baker Mayfield tested positive, uh, and, the Browns ba- and Case Keenum tested positive, so... That's just unfortunate. I mean, there's not much that the Browns could have done about this. But when it came down to it, the Browns got the game-winning drive. And their defense could not stop the Raiders from getting into field goal range and kicking the game-winning field goal. If you had given them an opportunity and you said, you're going to be up by any range from one to six points this weekend, who do you want having the ball? Or or not this weekend, because this game happened today, obviously, because it got postponed. But... If you want to talk about it that way, I mean, if you give them the opportunity, they will say, you know what? Being only up one with our defense on the field is one of the better situations we could be in. I guarantee you Browns fans would not say, I want Nick Mullins doing the two-minute drill to try to get us in the lead with two minutes left. They would definitely much rather have to be trying to stop Derek Carr with no Darren Waller on the field and really just a depleted team overall. I think it's pretty obvious that they would take their defense over their offense there. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, and the Raiders were able to move down the field, get a game-winning field goal uh, to end that game.
0: Okay, what about your most disappointing teams this past weekend?
1: Well, normally I talk about most disappointing teams when you only score in single digits, but I'm changing up that theme this week. Instead, I'm going for one team on the opposite end of that, where the Cowboys were able to hold uh, the Giants to six points, but the Giants had Mike Glennon starting at quarterback, uh, and Dak Prescott and the Cowboys offense once again lost their bet to the defense that they could get more touchdowns than the defense got takeaways the reason why i'm disappointed with this team is if this defense was not very very far above average i won't quite say elite it's a great defense if this defense wasn't great this team would be 8 and 8 just like the team last year this team does not have enough offense we we thought that the Cowboys would be so dangerous because they have this potent offense With a defense that has a lot of playmaking potential and that's good enough that it'll be in the middle of the league, kind of like the Chiefs were in 2019 when they made their Super Bowl run. But this offense is nowhere near elite. I mean, there were other offenses that did even worse this weekend. And frankly, they're still up there in the ranks of the NFC when you look at it. But this offense is not on the level of the Packers. I can say that with full confidence. It's not even close. Uh, So when you you want to put it that, I mean, this, this offense had probably maybe twice the possessions or time of possession. That the Packers were able to have. And the Packers just, it feels like every single drive they score, but all of a sudden, if you look at the scoring totals, it doesn't feel like it because they only score 31 points. In reality, if they played at the pace that some of the other teams do, the Packers might be putting up 60 a game. I mean, they play just, they play very methodical and slow, but it always works. They never get stopped. I think they average something like 10, nine or nine and a half yards on first downs alone against the Ravens, which. If a team is averaging nine yards on first down, it's impossible to stop them. Uh, And the thing is, that's not the first time the Packers have been doing that. And it's really just Aaron Rodgers being so efficient. Uh, Just the whole offense just functions so well for the Packers. And that's been through injuries and through everything that they've had to deal with. If you look at them with Aaron Rodgers on the field, they're an 11-2 team. And one of them was that week one loss to the Saints where they just looked out of sorts. You take out that loss. This is an 11-1 team. If you take out a Jordan Love game at the Chiefs <coughs> and that first game of the season, this team is by far and away the best team in the NFC. However, obviously the Cowboys are not. And you know who else is not and who has proven it over the last few weeks? The team that the Packers sent in a downward spiral, the Cardinals, who now lost to the worst team in the league, the Detroit Lions. Score of that game was 30-12. Uh, look, Kyler Murray didn't look great in this game. Uh, without DeAndre Hopkins, the receiving core didn't look that great in this game for the Cardinals. And even though the Lions were down to Craig Reynolds and Jason Cabinda, not even Godwin Iguablique, and not even DeAndre Swift or Jamal Williams, down to their fourth and fifth string running backs, the Lions rushed for more than 150 yards in this game, with most of that being Craig Reynolds. I mean, I don't know where the Cardinals go from here, honestly. It's just the same movie that it was last year where, at least last year, they, I mean, the first year under Cliff Kingsbury, they were 3-3 and or 3-3-1 and through the first seven games and then just could not get a win for the rest of the year, and just looked terrible. Then last year, they were 5-2 through the first seven, and really had an easy road to clinch a playoff spot, and weren't able to do it. And then this year, they're 7-0 through the first seven games, and somehow, they have an opportunity to clinch a playoff spot against the worst team in the league, and they can't beat the Lions. Not only can they not beat them, they lose by 18 points. Now, all of a sudden... If the Rams beat the Seahawks tomorrow in a game that got postponed, now the Rams are tied with the Cardinals at the top of the NFC West. After just two weeks ago, the Cardinals were up by two games on the Rams in the division with the game at home against the Rams for the, for, for the Rams to maybe close in one game. And if not, the Cardinals would go up by three games. It's ridiculous how the Cardinals have managed to throw away the whole every part of the advantage they had. The Rams have had some struggles in the past, though, against the Seahawks. It feels like every single year, whoever wins the first game in the series always loses the second one. So I don't know if the Rams are going to get the win. I, I, I won't say it's a guarantee. Uh, the Seahawks are still a scrappy team. They're still a good team. They still have Russell Wilson playing quarterback, uh, and the Rams still have a bunch of issues with COVID. They're the reason why the game was postponed. So we'll have to see what happens with the Rams and who's able to be activated, who isn't. Um, but regardless of that, it, it's possible that the Rams don't win that game, but still... If the Rams lose against the Seahawks, then the Cardinals can look at it and say, oh, if we had beaten the Lions, now we'd be two games up again, and all of a sudden, it's like the head-to-head matchup didn't even matter. But again, this choke against the Lions sets them up in a position to be tied by the end of the week. It's just not a great look at all for the Cardinals.
0: All right, well, let's go to the flip side and talk about the most impressive teams.
1: I will start with Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills, who have finally gotten back on the right track, beating the Panthers 31-14. Uh, moving on from that game, you have the Colts, who probably had the most impressive win uh, of the week, I would argue, on Saturday with a 27-17 victory over the Patriots. Carson once almost helped throw away the game for the Colts here, but the Colts end up making getting the win. Uh, Jonathan Taylor had a great run at the end of the game at a 67 or something like that yard touchdown run uh, when they were up 20-17 that won them the game. Uh, Then I talked about this Bengals-Broncos game already, but I'll go again and say I'm very impressed. At least I didn't say it in this way. The Bengals, I'm very, very impressed with their win at the Broncos in a tough environment, a hard place to play just in general. Uh, You know, I'm really impressed by the fact that they played a close game and it wasn't close because it was a 40-35 shootout based on their offense being so good. Their defense really stepped up in this game and played well, only giving up one touchdown. And then finally... I'll go with the Saints although I easily could have put the Buccaneers on the most disappointing teams uh the Saints won a game against the Buccaneers nine to nothing if you told a Buccaneers fan that they were going to give up nine points you could have picked any game this season and said you're gonna you're gonna give up only nine points in this game how many how much do you think you win by I know you're not losing and they'd say yeah we're not losing we're winning by 20 plus easily maybe fine maybe it might be 19 if it's 28 to nine. All of a sudden, oh no, the Buccaneers are looking terrible on offense. Zero points. They lost 9 to nothing, looking like a baseball game between, I don't know, the Dodgers and the Marlins or something like that, instead of the Saints-Buccaneers football. Tom Brady has yet to beat the Saints in the regular season still, uh, as he's been in Tampa Bay. Uh, and the one real problem in this game, I don't think the, the regular season record matters as much because he did win in New Orleans in the playoffs last year but he won't have Chris Godwin for the rest of the season, who's out with a torn ACL. That is the biggest news of this game. Now he's going to have to rely on Antonio Brown coming back and I guess somehow getting back into the flow of the offense after being injured and after being suspended. He's really got to work on the chemistry again with Tom Brady. It's almost like he just came here in the middle of the season again, just like he did at the end of the Super Bowl year last year. But the one thing that the Buccaneers were not dealing with last year was injuries. They were a very, very healthy team. They were the healthiest team in the league, and they were the hottest team in the league. This year, after their bye week, they haven't looked too hot. Even the games they've won, they haven't looked amazing in. And when you combine that with the fact that their whole defense is banged up, their secondary is not very great. Uh, they're, They're one of the worst passing defenses in the league. Their pass rush is still great, but as long as the pass rush doesn't get there, it feels like every route is open for every team. This team all of a sudden looks like a shell of its former self. I'm not saying they can't win the Super Bowl, but... They're definitely looking like they're more in the mix as opposed to a, a, a an overall number one contender, at least in the NFC picture. Uh, so I, I want to see more out of the Buccaneers in the coming weeks, especially on the offensive end, especially without Chris Godwin, because it feels like whenever the Patriots need, a, or sorry, the Buccaneers need to play, I was about I, I said Patriots because I was about to talk about Gronkowski, and I can't talk about Brady and Gronk without thinking about the Patriots, obviously. But it seems like whenever the Buccaneers need to play, it's always to Gronk or to Chris Godwin. Now all of a sudden. Maybe when you only have two, when you only have one guy, that you feel like you need to isolate. And obviously, Mike Evans is still a great receiver, but it feels like they throw to him a little bit less in those situations. we're well, in the red zone, uh, and he's been injured too, and he will continue to be injured. He he normally is playing through a lot of injuries, and that was no different last year than it is this year. And now he's really going to be playing through it as he was held out of most of the second half of the game against the Saints. Uh, but when it comes down to that, I feel like if you can just isolate one target instead of having to worry about Gronk and Godwin all of a sudden it becomes a little easier to, to, to maybe even send an, ex, an extra rusher every single time, and then now you're looking at kind of limiting a dimension of the offense that you couldn't limit in the past.
0: Okay, let's move on to the most impressive players of last week.
1: Well, I'll go with the duo, only from one team. Uh, a, lot, a lot of good stat lines across the league, but I feel like not so many crazy jump-off-the-page kind of lines other than Jonathan Taylor. Uh, that, I, that I didn't put on here, although Taylor, most of his yards were on that one big run at the end of the game. But Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill throughout the entire game against the Chargers were amazing. 10 receptions, 191 yards, two touchdowns for Travis Kelsey, 12 receptions, 148 yards for one t- for one touchdown on for for Tyreek Hill. I mean, look, th- these two were just the most ridiculous dynamic receiving duo. Uh, that I've seen in a really long time, uh, maybe since those two, like, two years ago. um, They're just ridiculous. I think there's no real words that you can put to it. It's just the fact that it it feels like even if you think you can stop them, you just can't. Patrick Mahomes had 410 yards in this game. When you add it up, these are almost 350 of it alone, just to these two guys. He, He barely needs to throw the ball to anybody else, and, I mean, frankly, he barely did. The next leading receiver was Byron Pringle at three receptions for 22 yards. He threw the ball to two guys all game. And by the way, Tyreek Hill left the game in the fourth quarter for a little bit and was even out for some of the snaps in overtime because of an injury. And still, he had 20. He had 22 receptions out of 31 were, thro- were passes thrown to Kelsey or to Hill, 13 targets for each of them, 26 of the team's total, 45. He trusts them more. They're better players. No offense to the rest of the Chiefs' receiving corps. They're all great. I mean, Clyde Edwards, E'Laire is even a great back uh, out of the backfield in terms of a receiving back. But these two are just an unstoppable duo. And if they continue like this, I don't think anybody's beating the Chiefs this entire season.
0: All right, well, let's take a look at the playoff picture. You want to start in the AFC?
1: Yeah, we will start with the Kansas City Chiefs. 10-4, they're the number one overall seed. After number two seed, New England. And after number three seed, Tennessee. Both lost, now slipping to 9-5. and five. All those teams were 9-4 and four heading into the week. Kansas City's win uh, and New England's New England and Tennessee's loss means that now you have Kansas City at number one, Tennessee at number two, uh, sorry, New England at number two, Tennessee at number three, and then Cincinnati at number four with some weird tiebreakers over Baltimore, uh, now at eight and six. Then you have Indianapolis also tied at eight and six. You have the Chargers tied at eight and six. You have Buffalo tied at eight and six. And you have Baltimore who... Even though they're simultaneously tied for a, a, the division and technically the fourth seed, while they're doing that, on the other hand, they're also by virtue of other tiebreakers, not only losing that division, but outside of the playoffs, still at eight and six, but tied with all those teams four through eight. They somehow get the short end of the stick. Uh, don't ask me to do the math. You can you can look it up somewhere. I, it, it's all very very confusing, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, but then you have Pittsburgh at seven six and one in the nine spot. You have Vegas at seven and seven at ten. Miami at seven and seven at 11 Cleveland uh, in 12th at seven and seven and Denver at seven and seven in 13th look that game in between Cincinnati and Denver it really means a lot when you look at the playoff picture right now if you can imagine what this looks like if Cincinnati had lost and Denver had won you have eight and six Denver who I don't know exactly how that tiebreaker works out but they'd probably be somewhere in the seven to eight mix I would assume. And then instead you have 7-7 seven and seven Denver here at 13th and you have Cincinnati as a division leader at 4th because, because of the fact that Cincinnati won that game. Otherwise you'd have Cincinnati all the way at the bottom down here at 13th with their loss. And it really means a lot more for Cincinnati because it puts them in the head of their division whereas Denver is still not probably going to get over the Chiefs regardless of what happens there. Um, but talking about that AFC North a little bit more, then you look at Cleveland. And if Cleveland had won this game against the Raiders, they would have been the number one team in their division and they would have been in the fourth spot that Cincinnati's in instead. But now because of the loss, they end up not only last in that division, but 12th in the playoff picture. So a little bit unfortunate for the for the Browns there, but look, that's why you got to win close games against teams that are on your level and they just weren't able to do that this weekend. Um, then you move on to the NFC, which looks a little bit odd because there are some teams that still haven't played games left that frankly, have some role to play in the playoff picture. Uh, you start with Green Bay, who have clinched the division at 11-3. and three. They're the first team to outright clinch a playoff berth, although I think it's pretty obvious. I think the, I think the playoff picture is starting to actually take shape in terms of at least who's going to make it or who seems like they're going to make it, especially the top three or top four, maybe even top five, you could argue, in both of the leagues. Um, but... Then you have Dallas at 10-4, who by virtue of strength of record, not head-to-head because there's a three-way tie, uh, are ahead of Tampa Bay and Arizona at 10-4. Tampa Bay also at 10-4, Arizona also at 10-4, but Tampa Bay's win over Dallas means nothing unless Arizona is not tied with them, and then if the Rams win, who are currently in fifth tomorrow against Seattle, then all of a sudden they're 10-4 too, and I have no idea what happens with that tiebreaker again. One of those things, don't ask me, you got to run a computer (laughs) simulation to figure it out. Uh, Then you have San Francisco in the sixth spot at eight and six. Judging on who's on the outside looking in, I think it's safe to say that the top six in the NFC are going to be six of the seven teams. I think the seventh team is completely up for grabs, but I still think that San Francisco at eight and six is... Pretty much safe. I think they'll find a way to at least win one of their three remaining games. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to be that much of an issue for them. Then you have Minnesota after their win over the Bears, finally not playing a one score game. They're in seventh at seven and seven. New Orleans win over Tampa Bay puts them in eighth at seven, and seven, at seven and seven. They're a team to watch because that was the hardest game remaining on their schedule. So winning that game was a big roadblock in their way. You tell them, I mean, look, they were six and seven going into that game. If they're six and eight, they're looking a lot worse than now what they're looking at. With 7-7 seven seven. now, instead of being a game back in the playoff spot, they're tied for that playoff spot and only losing because of a tiebreaker. And they've played Buccaneers twice already, the hardest games of the season that they're going to have. Uh, then you have Washington and Philadelphia, both at 6-7. and seven. They play each other tomorrow to see who will move to 7-7. Seven and seven. And I think, I, I want to say based on what I remember from the last few weeks, Washington has some kind of a tiebreaker over Minnesota. But as I've seen with Dallas uh, now being ahead of Tampa Bay, it changes when you add a third team in, so I'm not going to say who would be ahead. You have Atlanta, who lost to San Francisco, now at 6-8. and eight. I think you can start to say easily that they're slipping out of it, especially after that Saints win against the Buccaneers. Uh, and then you have Seattle at 5-8, and eight, who, yes, still is technically in the playoff picture because all of a sudden, say they beat the Rams, now they're 6-8, and eight, now they're one game back, and they have Russell Wilson, the best quarterback of, argue, I would say easily, the best quarterback out of the six teams who are here in between 7th and 12th maybe with the exception of Kirk Cousins, the way he's playing this season alone. But Russell Wilson overall, obviously the best career out of any of the six quarterbacks who are in it.
0: Okay, well, that wraps up our look back at the NFL for this week, uh, although a couple of games left to be played. Uh, And it also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Friday, December 24th, where we will hang our stockings and focus on basketball with our weekly analysis of NBA and NCAA basketball action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games, his latest NCAA tournament bracket, which was posted on Saturday, and his next bracket, which will be posted tomorrow, his predictions for every college football bowl game and the college football playoff semifinals, which will be published tomorrow and updated throughout the bowl season based on player opt-outs. All of that content on our website, 4 24com That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.